Hello and welcome to the Ankeny Gospel Podcast. My name is Parker McGoldrick. I'm one of the pastors here at Ankeny Gospel Church. And today we're going to be kind of doing a deeper dive into Mark chapter 1. As a church, <clears throat> as a church, we're going through the gospel according to Mark. Uh, we're doing it very quickly. We're actually skipping a few chunks. And so because of that, I want to um, use this podcast as a way to kind of fill in some blanks and fill in some uh, uh, maybe passages that we didn't get to spend a lot of time with, cover some of that stuff here and go from there. On Sunday, we talked about, or we preached through um, Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Well, we also, actually, we talked about Mark as a whole, like the gospel according to Mark. What's the purpose of it? What's the structure of it? Um, How does Mark portray Jesus? How does Mark portray the disciples? How does Mark portray um, the Pharisees? Because one thing that we're really trying to do is we're trying to allow Mark to be Mark. A lot of times, especially in Mark, since it's very uh, terse, it's very short, it's very condensed. A lot of times you hear people who will read a little bit of Mark, but then they'll jump over to Matthew or Luke to try to, you know, supplement, uh, you know, missing details or fill in the blanks or or whatever. And that's kind of, we talked about how that's a little unfortunate. It doesn't allow, primarily because it doesn't allow Mark to be Mark. Like the gospel according to Mark had a very specific purpose. And actually recently in the last like couple decades or so, scholars especially have been spending a ton of time um, in Mark and researching it and looking at the different themes, looking at um, the the Jesus, uh, the character of Jesus in Mark, character of disciples in Mark and things like things like that. And it's been um, really cool to see because most of the emphasis is on Matthew Lake. But anyway, I'm already literally already digressing and I'm not even two minutes in. Okay. Um, so today we're going to talk about Mark 1, 1 through 13. We talked about 14 and 15 uh, in the sermon last week, but we kind of skipped over pretty much everything else. We skipped over John the Baptist. We skipped over the baptism of Jesus, and we skipped over the temptation narrative of Jesus in the gospel according to Mark. So we're going to dive into that a little bit more uh, today. And that being said, the purpose of this Um, you know, Paul warns us, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The purpose of these podcasts and this, and especially this one, we're going to be doing a deep dive is to understand the heart of God, right? It's to understand who God is. God has revealed himself to us in this book, in this narrative, in this story. And every single word then, because of that, every single uh, plot, every single theme, every single book, every single chapter, every single verse is a way to hear from God. Um, and if it's just a way for us to, you know, puff ourselves up with with knowledge, then it's kind of just, it's honestly a waste of time. So I hope that this, all that to say is I hope that this um, will seem and will actually be and will produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold uh, for our love for God and our love for others. So that being said, Mark 1.1. 1, 1. Mark 1.1 1, 1 says this. Also, this might help more if you have a Bible in front of you. If not, that's totally fine. Um You'll just completely miss out on everything I have to say. (laughs) Just kidding. There's nobody here with me to record this podcast, so I can't tell if my joke ever lands or not. But anyway, Mark 1, chapter 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. This is the only time, the only time that Mark tells us exactly what he wants us to know, exactly what he's thinking, exactly who Jesus is. 
The only time he tells us is right here, right now. Then he throws us into a story where none of the characters know this information. Namely, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, one thing about this idea, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I always thought that beginning meant like, oh, like, because right after this, it jumps into John the Baptist, Jesus' baptism, and then right into his ministry. So I always thought that this was referring to, excuse me, Jesus' baptism. I thought the phrase, the beginning, was referring to the beginning, like Jesus' baptism. And then the rest of Mark, the middle of Mark was the middle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the end of Mark was the end of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But more digging I did, I found out that that is actually not the case. The begin That little verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, is actually more like a title for the entire gospel, according to Mark, for the entire book. So what that means is, one scholar says this, what that means is, is that the beginning of the good news, well, what that means is that the whole book is the beginning, which means that chapter 16, which is the end, which is the resurrection, that's also still the beginning. It's like this verse acts as a title for the whole book. And one scholar, Joel Marcus, he says this, the beginning of the good news is over on Easter morning, aka when the gospel of Mark ends, like the book ends. He goes on, after that, the good news of Jesus will continue through the life of the church. I thought that was fascinating, which means what? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the entire gospel. That means it's it's Jesus's baptism. That's the beginning of the gospel. It's Jesus casting out demons. That's the beginning of the gospel. It's Jesus uh, getting opposition from the Pharisees. That's the beginning of the gospel. It's Jesus being crucified. It's Jesus dying and it's Jesus rising from the dead. All of that is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which implies, as this scholar points out and many others do, that the rest of the gospel, the middle of the gospel is the life of the church. And the end of the gospel obviously is Jesus's return when God returns and he raises the dead and he is with his people in his place forever with Jesus, because of Jesus, through Jesus, on account of Jesus, right? So I thought that was really cool. Like, this whole thing is the gospel, not just part of it, not just a you know section of it, but the whole thing is the gospel. So that's verse one. Um, verse two, man, you are this is this is great. I love this. We're seven minutes in, and we're we're one verse in. Verse two says this: As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see, this is the quote. Quote: See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Okay, a couple things here. First, um, every time, this is just a good Bible reading strategy. Every time the New Testament quotes or alludes to or makes an echo of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, every single time that that happens, they are not merely quoting one verse, but rather they are quoting an entire, they're, they're bringing to mind an entire narrative. They're bringing to mind an entire theology. They're bringing to mind an entire um, book of the Bible or even chapter of the Bible. So here's an example. What I mean by that is like when, when they quote, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, while we think of quotes, it's just like, um, you know, we think of a quote that's just kind of like to prove our point. But a quote is more so to import previous and prior knowledge of something onto a current situation. 
Um, I'll give you an example. Jesus's words on the cross. He says what? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is direct quote from Psalm 22, verse one. Now, what Jesus is doing is he's quoting that verse. What he is not doing is quoting only that verse. So what rabbis did in this time, what teachers did in this time, what, um, how writing and how quoting worked in this time was if you were a good rabbi or a good teacher, what you would do is you would start a verse or you would start a psalm or you would start a prophecy or a woe oracle from the prophets. You would start it. And then in order to teach your students, you would actually have your students end it or finish it. This is very common practice. So what that means Jesus is doing is Jesus is starting Psalm 22, verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And people who have been enmeshed in the uh, Jewish heritage and typically or particularly the Hebrew Bible, they would have been finishing the Psalm in their head because most of them would have had it memorized, especially the Pharisees and Jesus's uh, I guess John was the only disciple there and uh, Jesus' mother. Like it's all of them would have had Psalm 22 memorized. And well, how does Psalm 22 end? Well, it's Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, um, you know, it says, you know, save me from, it's like all these, this terrible imagery. Like you lay me in the dust of death, save me from the bulls of Bashan. My, my heart is like wax. My bones are out of joints. They pierced my hands. They pierced my feet. Like all this is in Psalm 22, but then it ends and it says, yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel and you are fathers trusted. And then it goes on to say that I will praise you in your, in the midst of the assembly. Um, your name is great. All who are in you take refuge, things like that. So what Jesus is doing is, yes, he just said one verse, Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he expects everybody who hears that to finish the psalm, to finish the story, to finish the narrative, to finish the theology. The same is true of New Testament authors and especially here in Mark. So what Mark does here in verse 2 and 3 is he says, a voice of one crying out in the darkness, in the wilderness, sorry, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He quotes one verse What he wants us to do is he wants us to import the message of Isaiah. Now, the next question is, what is this message of Isaiah? Well, the message of Isaiah, particularly in this section, is one of comfort. So um, the first part of Isaiah, some people call it first Isaiah, is very much like heavy handed and dark. It's like, you guys are just the worst. You're going to hell in a handbasket. You have turned away from the Lord. You do not know you, you have eyes, but you do not see you have ears, but you do not hear. Then, uh, at the end of chapter 39, in between chapter 39, and chapter 40, Jerusalem actually falls to Babylon. And it's this crazy, catastrophic, terrible event. And then Isaiah shifts. This is sometimes people call it second Isaiah. Uh, in chapter 40, verse 1, and he starts comforting the people of Israel. So at first he was like condemning them and now he's comforting them. And the verse, the in the middle of that comfort, which is basically like Israel has lost its way. There is judgment um, from the Lord, but fear not because the Lord is actually not giving up on his people. He is faithful to his people. He will bring them back into the fold. He will uh, cause a shoot to come from the stem of Jesse and he will send somebody along. Somebody's, well, he's actually going to send somebody who's going to prepare the way of this servant, this suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53 of this, um, this shoot of Jesse, which the spirit will fall on. And so this is the context of Isaiah letting us know that. And so when Mark uses it, what Mark is saying is that 
uh, this kind of context, this setting is happening now. So this idea that the Lord is still faithful, the Lord has not left his people abandoned, the Lord has not left Israel um, alone anymore, but rather he's preparing the way, he's sending somebody to prepare the way for somebody else, for this suffering servant who will be pierced for our transgression and crushed for, crushed for our iniquities, for this shoot of Jesse who will spring up new life out of what was dead, for this um, this this person who is anointed by the Spirit. And so you read, you read verse three, you're th- we're only three verses into Mark one. And already what Mark wants us to be thinking is, whoa, okay, okay, okay. Clearly this guy's important, this Jesus guy, because it says son of God. There's a good news about him. And also he's claiming that the prophecies of Isaiah, also there's a, it's not just a quote from Isaiah. There's a quote from Exodus and Malachi in that uh, little section. Um, but he just says, Isaiah, the, all of all of these things might be reaching their fulfillment. They might be coming to an end. This is a very, um, you know, scholars call it an eschatological uh, moment. It's kind of an end time, moment, like a like the last things moment. And you hear that, right? You hear in the prophets in the last in those days is actually the thing. In those days, this will happen. In those days, I will send my spirit. In those days, they will have a new heart. In those days, um, I will circumcise their heart. In those days, I will turn their heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. In those days, my spirit will be on all of God's people. And so what Mark is saying is that something cataclysmic, did I say that right? Yeah, I think so. Who knows? Nobody's here to correct me. (laughs) Uh, Something huge is happening. We're three verses in. So who is this one preparing the way of the Lord? uh, Chapter one, verse four. The next verse, John. John came baptizing, John the baptizer, not a Baptist, but a baptizer, Growing up, I, I grew up at a Baptist church. It was called Cornerstone Baptist. And I always thought that John was like, I actually used, I used John the Baptist as like proof that our denomination was right. Oh man, that was to my Lutheran friend. Anyway, doesn't matter. John the baptizer came baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse five, the whole Judean countryside, everybody, and all of the people of Jerusalem, everybody, they were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Okay, another uh, thing that Mark wants us to see here is it's not just a quote from the Old Testament that proves that this is a huge event that's happening, but also these verses right here. Um, oh, also verse six says that John wore a camel held guard camel hair garment a leather with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locust and wild honey so these verses right here uh, are continuing this type of uh, scene that mark is painting which is basically look guys the time is the time is here something big is happening there is a new exodus that's about to happen the first exodus being israel redeemed from oppressive slavery and powers passed through the Red Sea into salvation. The new Exodus, that's a theme out in, throughout the Hebrew Bible. The new Exodus is one where God himself will lead, not just Moses, but God himself will lead his people out of oppression and slavery and into a new promised land. And so there's this new Exodus being kind of stirred up in our imagery here. There's this new humanity, right? Like God will make uh, what was dead and he'll make it alive. And so um, this passage where John is baptizing, he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And then it says, you know, the whole Judean countryside, all of the people of Jerusalem, that's hyperbole, right? Because obviously not every single person came out there because 
we know that they were people who were not baptized by John. So hyperbole, but it's this, this emphasis because in Zechariah 12 and 13, there's this prophecy that says God will pour out his spirit of remorse and that masses and masses and myriads and myriads of people will repent and be baptized. And so you hear read this in Mark and you read that all of them were going out from Jerusalem and Judea and all of them were being baptized and all of them were confessing their sins. It says in Zechariah 2 that everybody will confess their sins. Uh, the scholar um, Joel Marcus says that the reader... Um, actually, yeah, okay, it says this. The reader is left with the impression, the reader, a.k.a. you and me, is left with the impression that a powerful action of God is taking place, one that expresses itself both in the baptism of myriads of people and in their being moved to confess their sins, which epitomizes their repentance, a.k.a., because of Zechariah's themes, because of Isaiah's themes, because of all these things that Mark is tugging on, what Mark is claiming here is that a huge move of God is, is stirring. A huge move of God is taking place. It, I, I read the verse where it says John is, uh, he wore camel hair and he had a leather belt and he ate locusts and wild honey. A lot of people think that that's just like, oh, cool, cool detail. Thanks. You know, bye. No, no, no. Elijah in uh, 2 Kings, or is it 1 Kings? I can't remember now. Where are my notes? 1 Kings. 1 Kings 19, uh, 1 Kings 19. Elijah wears the exact same clothes, which means what? That Elijah is a prophet of God who was in the wilderness and who prophesied to God's people and prepared the way for Elisha, who had a double portion of the spirit because he was baptized or he was immersed uh, it doesn't use the word baptized, which is why I said that, immersed. Uh, he was immersed with the Spirit. Well, guess who we have here? We have John the Baptist wearing the exact same clothes that Elijah's, Elijah wore. He's in the wilderness. He's prophesying. But then guess who comes after him who is immersed in the Spirit? Bada bing. Jesus, right? So there's this parallelism or this um, kind of mirroring, this pattern. Pattern's a better word. A pattern of Elijah, Elisha, that is kind of like imported onto John the Baptist and Jesus. So John the Baptist proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I is coming after than me. I am not, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but um, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then what is the next phrase? In verse nine, it says, in those days... In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. In those days is a trigger word, by the way. Um, t- excuse me, telling us to focus on, oh, wait, all the prophets, they would always say, in those days, this will happen. In those days, this will happen. In those days, this will happen. I guess it might be happening. So in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee. He was baptized in the Jordan by John. I always thought it was funny that John said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And then he baptizes him. <laughs> I don't know why that's kind of funny, but it's like, not only are you, not, not only are you worthy to untie his sandals, you're worthy enough to baptize the son of God. Wow. That's crazy. Verse 10 and 11 are super significant. Then we'll touch on the temptation narrative. Then we'll wrap up verse 10 and 11. It says this, as soon as he, he being Jesus came up out of the waters, he saw, um, heaven, the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Who remembers the quote from verse two? What prophet is it from? 
Bada bing. It's from Isaiah. We're continuing this theme of Isaiah. In Isaiah 61, 63, and 64, it talks about God tearing open the heavens and sending his spirit on his people. 63 uh, in particular, uh, 63, 11 through 64, 1. The prophet prays that God would rip apart the heavens and send his spirit on his people. Well, what just happened in verse 10? The heavens were ripped apart or torn open and the spirit descended on Jesus. Now, this is only Jesus at this point. This isn't everybody, but this is imagery saying, okay, Jesus is the firstborn of a new creation. That's what Paul means, right? Jesus is this this, uh, new humanity. He is the one that is going to be the new Moses to lead his people into a new exodus, into a new promised land, right? Now, I love this idea of being ripped open, being ripped open or torn open. The CSB says being torn open. That's what the heavens were like. Two things about it. One, something that's torn open is not easily put back together, which means that what God is doing is he's inaugurating something and he's starting something that it cannot be reversed. Two, the second reason I like it is because the only other time that this phrase and these words are used is after Jesus's death on the cross, it says that the veil was torn open from top to bottom. It was actually says torn in two, but the same verb there is torn in two from top to bottom. So the first time something's torn open, it's the heavens and the spirit comes onto Jesus like a dove. The second time, which is like basically saying God is intervening into humanity. The second time it's torn open, it's not just from the heavens, it's actually from the temple, which implies that the spirit of God is not just limited to Jesus or his temple anymore, but actually it's so torn open and God is interrupting the lives of us. God is intervening in the lives of all of humanity, not just Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn of new creation and his resurrection we follow in him through that. A voice comes from heaven, verse 11. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Um, We talked about that in the sermon. And then here's the quick notes on the temptation narrative. The temptation narrative is just two verses. It says this, immediately the spirit drove him, him being Jesus, into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days. He was being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. Weird details if you kind of just read it at first glance it's like okay why do i need to know that the um why do i need to know that he was with the wild animals and that the angels were serving him well it's giving us a picture of something it's giving us a picture of a person jesus with the spirit or the presence of god because the spirit descended on him like a dove in a, a wilderness with animals and with angels who else what other character in the bible is kind of this reminds us of this a person with the spirit or presence of god with animals and with angels well this is adam right adam before the fall it was adam who was in the presence of god granted garden and wilderness is a little bit of a stretch but he was also with wild animals and most um jewish tradition uh infers and believes that um animal or i'm sorry animals angels actually gave adam food right so adam Listen to this. Adam was tested by God's adversary, the devil. He lived at peace with the wild, the, the serpent. He lived at peace with the wild animals. And most Jewish tradition says that angels gave Adam food. Okay, cut. Move over to Mark. Mark, the Jesus in Mark's gospel was just tested by God's adversary, Satan. He is living at peace with wild animals. And he is, we're told that the angels are serving him. 
what is this? This is new humanity. This is the new Adam, right? We talked about Jesus being the new Moses and leading his people out of that. Well, he's also being portrayed here as a new Adam. Jesus is the one in whom God's dominion over the earth will be realized. Another scholar points out Psalm 8. Psalm 8, it talks about, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. And then it talks about this, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You put everything under his feet. You made him rule over all of the works of your fingers. You put the animals under his feet. You put everything under his feet. And that is kind of the imagery that's being, that's, uh, that's happening here. So all that to say, all of this to say, wrapping all of it up. Well, again, uh, verse 14, it goes, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And this is his gospel. This is his good news. The time is fulfilled, the time of the old age, the time of waiting, the time where the law was external, not internal, the time where they were waiting for this suffering servant, waiting for this Messiah, waiting for this Christ. That is fulfilled. It has come to an end. And he continues, and the kingdom of God has come near, this new creation, this new humanity, this spirit of God living in, with, and through his people so that, in Jesus' words in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven, or it can be on earth as it is in heaven. And his application, Jesus' application is repent and believe the good news. So that was a lot. That was a lot of information. But again, what this does is this gives us a holistic picture, one of the scriptures, but most importantly, a holistic picture of Jesus. I don't know about you, but as I as I think about these things, as I go back and I read Isaiah, which I would really encourage you to do. Oh, by the way, if you don't have a reference Bible, which is basically just like a Bible that in either the margins or the bottom, it has all like tons and tons and tons of other scripture references. If you don't have one, get one ASAP as possible. If you do have one, Go through every verse in Mark that we just went over and look at all of the quotations, look at the allusions, look at the chapter before, the chapter of, the chapter after, because Mark doesn't just, like I said, he doesn't just quote a verse. He quotes an entire, all New Testament authors do this. They quote an entire like theology and it's rich and it's beautiful. So I hope if anything, this is kind of um, flesh, uh, uh, yeah, giving giving meat to the bones of who Jesus is. You know, a lot of times we just kind of sit here and and say we love Jesus, but then we don't take the time to actually um, do this. So I, I hope this is helpful. I hope this, if anything, like we said at the beginning, it doesn't puff us up with knowledge, but it actually builds us up and it's loving. And that through this, we would actually get to see who Jesus is and see his power and see his beauty and see his... Um, his, his majesty and his humanity too, and uh, just fall more in love with him and, and worship him. So hope this was helpful um, and um, peace be with you all and we'll see you later.